You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 7, and we're going to read together verses 10 through verse 24. John 7. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some some were saying, He's a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word again, and it is our our duty and our delight to exercise our mental powers in trying to apprehend and See what is in your word. It is our duty and delight to rely upon the Spirit of God to be our teacher. And we pray that that might be our the posture of our hearts this morning as we come to your word. Be, be our teacher and be our guide. Help us to understand these things. And we pray that we might see in your word wonderful things and that you might, by your grace and by your Spirit, use your word to conform us to the image of Christ and show us our Savior, that we might behold him anew and love him. We pray that you would fill our hearts with wonder, love, and praise for you are great God, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we live in a postmodern world. Uh, postmodernism is the belief that there are no absolutes, absolutely none. There's no moral absolutes, there are no truth absolutes, nothing is absolute. And you can ask a postmodernist, do you really believe that? And they will say, absolutely. Postmodernism is the belief that there is no truth, nothing is true. What is true for you might be true for you, but it's not objectively true because what's true for you might not be true for me, and what's true for me might not be true for you. And so you should not force your truth upon me, and I won't force my truth upon you. We can each have our own truth. But it's not true in the sense of it really being true. It's just true for you. Because really, we all know there is no truth. And so then you would just ask a postmodern, is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Well, no. Because if it is true, then it can't be true. And if it's not true, then it's not true. But there is no truth. Or a postmodernist believes that you cannot make any statements about truth. There can be no true statements. You can't make a statement that can actually be tested as whether or not it is true or not because no statement can be true or false. So you just ask a postmodern, is that a true statement? 
That's what you get. Because it's so insane. And amazingly, people pay money to send their kids to institutions where they are drilled this into their head constantly. That there is no truth, there are no absolutes, and there's no such thing as a true statement. Uh, that is why, for a postmodern, they would never be concerned with the question of, who is Jesus? See, I ask you the question, who is Jesus? Postmodern could never ask that question. A postmodernist would ask the question this way, who is Jesus to you? To you. See, that fills you, fills you with warm and fuzzy, doesn't it? And you just want to hug me now, don't you? Because I, I asked it that way. It's not a matter of who Jesus was, it's who is Jesus to you. That's Oprahanity. That's Oprah's philosophy. It doesn't really matter whether Jesus actually existed or not. The question is, who is Jesus to you? And churches have bought into the postmodern mindset. You don't have to travel far and wide, and this is going to be even more prevalent in the days and years ahead. You don't have to travel far to find a church that will say, we don't have any creed but Christ. That's sort of the new catchphrase. No creed but Christ. Jesus is our creed. We don't have doctrinal statements. We don't have statements of faith. We just It's no creed but Christ. And we just do Jesus. And you can cut through all of that postmodern gobbledygook by just asking one simple question. Who's Jesus? And see, the minute you start to answer that question, you're doing what? You're giving me a doctoral statement. You're giving me truth about Jesus. You're giving me some creed, some creed you believe. Really, it's not that they don't have any creed but Christ. It's that they have a creed, they just don't want to share it with you. And they're trying to sort of bait and switch you into worshiping their Jesus, and then later on they'll tell you who he is. That's how postmodernism has affected the church. And, and really, the question of who is Jesus is just as relevant, if not more so, than anything he said and every, anything he did. Because if he is not who he said he was, then it doesn't matter what he said. If he's not God, then it's irrelevant to me. If he's not God in human flesh, then we just pack up the whole mess and be done with it, because none of what he said and none of what he did makes any difference to us whatsoever. So the issue of who is Jesus makes means more than what he said and what he did. And really, that is the crux of the issue. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Now, if you ask that question, like Jesus did to the disciples in Matthew 16, who do men say that I am? You will get a Pandora's box of answers in our modern-day culture, will you not? Some people, way out on the fringe, will say he never really existed. He's just a myth that they made up, but he has no root in actual, literal history. Some people will say that Jesus was just a nice guy, a good man. Some people will say he was a traveling rabbi, an itinerant preacher, a religious figure, a good moral teacher. Some people will say that, he, uh, New Agers will say, that he was a, a mystic, some avatar, some incarnation of the divine with a, a divine message. Liberals say he was a political revolutionary who sort of fought against the patriarchal, rule-dominated society of his day, and he was just a few millennia ahead of his time. And if he had lived today, he would be down holding up signs on Wall Street being saying he was one of the 1% or 99% or whatever percent they are. I'm not even sure what percent they are. But that's everybody's vision of Jesus. That's everybody's perspective on Jesus. As Christians, we say, he is God incarnate. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is the divine Son who has eternally existed as the Word of God. And that Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He left the throne of heaven, the worship of angels, the adoration of heaven, and all of the comforts and conveniences and the prerogatives of deity. He left all of that to be incarnated, to be born of a virgin, and to live among us. That is who Jesus Christ is. And we believe that that is true, and we believe that it is true, absolutely. Who is Jesus. In his own day, people were divided about him and had different views of him because Jesus is a polarizing figure. He was in his own day, and he still is today. And we looked at some of the opinions that people had of him last week in John, where they some said, he's a good man. That's an inadequate 
representation of Jesus because it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't confess that he is God. It goes in the right direction. He is good. We would all agree with that, but it's not adequate. He's more than just a good man. Some people say he's a good man. Others said, no, no, no. On the contrary, he leads the people astray. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were in this camp. He leads the people astray. He's a false prophet. He's a false teacher. He's a liar. And what he is doing, he is doing for his own ends and for his own self-aggrandizement. That was the that was the reigning viewpoint of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And so they sought to kill him. And we saw that in face in the face of all of that hostility, all of that opposition, all of that polarizing influence, the Lord Jesus went up to the Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths, and he arrived in secret. And now we come to verse 14. Now we come to verse 14, where Jesus begins to teach in the temple, and now the issue in the temple is his teaching. What is his teaching? What is the legitimacy of his teaching? What are his claims? Who is he saying that he is? Where does his teaching come from? And should we listen to him or not? That's the issue in the temple. So we pick it up in verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast... The Jew, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Now, that's the Jewish challenge to his teaching. Now, Jesus' response goes from verse 16 all the way through the end of verse 24. It's hard to divide it up, and so it's kind of, you kind of got to deal with it as a, as, a, as a section of verses, and I don't have until next week to really decide where we're going to split that passage, 16 to 24, because it's all one big answer. We're going to look at it briefly in just a moment. Verses 15 to 16 is their challenge to his teaching. Verses or 14 and 15, verse 16 and following is his answer. And basically Jesus' answer goes along two lines. He says in verse 16 and 17 that his teaching comes from the Father. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. And then in verse 18, Jesus' teaching glorifies the Father. Not only did it come from the Father, but verse 18, it glorifies the Father. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. That's sort of the beginning of Jesus' answer. Today we're going to look at the, the Jewish challenge to Jesus' teaching in verse 15 and 16. Their challenge. Look at verse 15 or verse 14. So I say I said 15 and 16. I meant 14 and 15. Verse 14 and 15. When it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Why don't you stop just there for a second? It was the midst of the feast, and the word midst literally means. It comes from a verb that means to be in between two things. Now, the feast was eight days long, and so when it's used like that, basically John is saying, at the midway point of the feast, at the midway point of the feast, Jesus went up in the temple and began to teach. The midway point would have been about Wednesday. Since the feast ran from Sunday through Sunday, the midway point would have been about the middle of the week. On about Wednesday, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Now, that he would have done what rabbis were had been doing all week long. It was customary for rabbis to do this. They would go into the temple, into the outer court of the temple, and they would sit down, not like I'm doing, they would sit down on the ground someplace in the temple courtyard, and people would either stand or sit around them, and the rabbi would begin to teach. And people would kind of come and go. The pious Jews would gather. It was a feast. And so you can imagine this massive temple courtyard. It was many acres large. And there would have been rabbis with their little schools of pupils around them all over the temple complex. And Jesus was doing what other rabbis had been doing in the courtyard all week long. And now he's doing it. And people have gathered around him and began to listen to him teach. Do you remember back in Luke chapter 2? And we never studied Luke chapter 2. But you remember the story of when Jesus' mom and dad brought Joseph and Mary brought him up to Jerusalem when he was 12 years old, and then they took off from the temple and they were gone for about a day before they realized, hey, our oldest child isn't with us. And they went back to Jerusalem, and where did they find him? Luke 2.46 says, After three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers. 
He was, do, he was doing there as a student what he's doing now as a teacher, sitting in the temple courtyard, and he is listening to them teach. And he was both listening to them and asking them questions. And Luke says in 2.47, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He began to ask the teachers questions in the courtyard, and they were, wow, what a perceptive young man. Twelve years old, and he, these are profound questions. And they were asking him questions, and he was giving them answers, and they were amazed at that. Now Jesus is doing the same thing as, a, as an adult that he did as a 12-year-old, but now the roles have switched. He's a teacher instead of being a student. But he's in the courtyard, he's sitting down, and he is teaching them in the midst of the temple. Now this seems like a very odd thing to do, does it not? If you're trying to remain hidden. You've come to Jerusalem in secret. That was the whole point. His brother said, come up, make a massive demonstration of your power, let the people see you, and they will believe on you. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going up that way. I'm not going up for that purpose. You guys go up. Your Your time is always opportune. Mine is not yet. And so they went up, and then he came up in secret. And now about midway through the temple, he sits down, or midway through the feast, he sits down in the temple and begins to teach the people publicly. This is as public as it can get. He has gathered people around him. There are other teachers there. The Jews, even those hostile to him, are now into the temple, and they're seeing what's going on, watching him. Why would he do this if he was trying to remain hidden or be in secret? If his life was in danger, what's going on? You know what it is? This was his time, Wednesday. This was the time for him to publicly be revealed and for people to see who he was. I think there's a bit of wisdom here. We talked about this last week, a little bit of wisdom in what Jesus did. Not He, he does not uh, come into the temple on the very first day of the feast when the Jews would have ample opportunity to see him and to confront him and to arrest him. The Jews were expecting him to come to the feast. And so here's how this played out. The Jews were expecting him to come to the feast, knowing that when he arrived, if they could seize him privately, if they could seize him when he got there, before a crowd had a chance to gather, before he could go public with anything, if they could seize him then in the quietness, they could do with him as they pleased. That was their intention because Jerusalem was divided. Some people viewed him as a good person. Some people were wondering, is he the Christ? We find out this later in John chapter 7. The whole city was divided. And so he had people who were sympathetic to him. If he had a chance to get into Jerusalem and gather a crowd of people who were sympathetic to him, arresting him would be much more difficult. And so he takes them basically on their heels in this episode in the temple before they even know where he is at. He's in the middle of the temple with a crowd of people, many of whom are sympathetic to him, listening to him teach, and now they have missed all opportunity to seize him privately. And their public attempt to seize him later in John chapter 7 fails when they send the officers to him. They can't lay hands on him. The officers come back and say, no man ever spoke like this man. They come back empty-handed. All of their attempts now to publicly arrest Jesus fail because Jesus has waited till the opportune and perfect time to reveal himself in the temple. So he goes up into the temple and he begins to teach, verse 15, or verse 14. Then the Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? How has this man become learned, having never been educated? He is teaching, and they are astonished or amazed at his teaching. And what is it about his teaching that amazed them? It was his knowledge. It was his knowledge. Jesus as God incarnate was wisdom incarnate and the wisdom of God incarnate. And there was something about his teaching that was so perceptive and so profound that it captivated people. And it amazed them that this man who came from, of all places, Nazareth of Galilee, could teach like this man could teach. It amazed them to hear him teach. They were struck by it. His knowledge and his intellect. You know why he was different than all of the other teachers? Because he was the author of the book, giving commentary on what he wrote. That set him apart from every other rabbi, every other teacher. Here was the author of the Old Testament, 
the God who inspired it, who was there, who saw the events, determined what should be written down, and by the Spirit of God wrote those words down through the prophets. Here was the author of the Old Testament teaching on the Old Testament. If you're like me, then you love good preaching. You love to listen to good preaching. You love to hear good preaching. You love to attend good preaching. You feel fed by good preaching and teaching. As anybody who stands up behind a pulpit knows, every preacher aspires to eventually be a good preacher. You always want to be a good preacher. Charles Spurgeon, who's called the Prince of Preachers at the end of his life, said, someday I hope to preach because he realized how far short he had come. I love good preaching. You think back through all of the great preachers in church history, whether it was the teaching of Martin Luther or men like Jonathan Edwards and or uh, Whitfield or uh, guys who proclaimed the truth and preached the gospel like D.L. Moody or uh, great men of even our own age of recently like D.L. Uh, um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and men who are still alive like John MacArthur. These guys are great expositors, great Bible teachers. We love to listen to them. We love to soak it up. But listen, I'll tell you something. None of these guys could hold a candle to the Lord. Even the greatest preacher was not anywhere near the Lord Jesus. It would have been marvelous, I think, to just sit and listen to him. You know why he's different? I'm standing up here teaching you right now, but I'll I'll tell you this. I don't know where anybody's heart in this congregation is. Jesus would know that. He could stand up here and he could give you words that would pierce right to your heart. He always knew the perfect analogy, the perfect illustration, the perfect story, the perfect word to choose the perfect way to apply that message. He was a perfect teacher, and they were astonished at his insight, at his understanding, at his knowledge, because he had never been to an accredited institution. He had never been educated. In Mark, in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. That was another thing that set him apart, not just his knowledge, but his authority. You know how the scribes taught? The rabbis and the scribes of Jesus' day always taught by quoting other men. Uh, Rabbi Shmuley teaches this, and Rabbi Levi teaches this, and Rabbi Hachak teaches this, and they would go on quoting all of these different rabbis and these sources and these books and these documents and these scrolls and everybody else who was authority and the teacher of this school and that teacher, always quoting other men. But Jesus didn't do that. All the Old Testament prophets would say, Thus says the Lord. Jesus said, I say unto you. That was radically different than anything they'd ever heard. Nobody ever taught with that type of authority. That was either God-given authority as God incarnate, or it was the most audacious thing to ever say in that context. And they were struck by that. Jesus would say, I say unto you, truly, truly, listen to me. The Scripture says, and I say unto you. And he'd never quote other people. He wasn't interested in quoting rabbis because they weren't his authority. He was different. He taught them as one who knew the book and he could speak with the authority of God and that captivated them. There's another thing about his teaching that captivated people is his wisdom. His wisdom. In Matthew chapter 13, it says he came to his hometown and began teaching in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom and his power to perform miraculous signs? There was a wisdom to his teaching and an adeptness and an an articulateness that was rivaled by nobody. To be in his presence and to hear him teach, people were amazed and they were captivated. Nobody ever fell asleep during one of Jesus' sermons. Just gripped their hearts and their minds. That is what anybody who ever aspires to preach and to teach seeks to do to captivate and to grip people's hearts and people's minds. Jesus did it perfectly every time. They were astonished. Where did this man get his knowledge, having never been educated? What are they referring to? All of the little scribal schools that were in Jerusalem, and there were many of them that the scribes and the Pharisees kept up. 
And you could go to this school, which kind of believed this quirky thing, and there's a little Jewish denomination over here, and this rabbi taught it this way, and there was another Jewish school over here on this corner. The Apostle Paul makes mention of his schooling at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the teachers of one of the schools in Jerusalem. The scribes and the Pharisees had their own little Jewish seminaries all over the city of Jerusalem, and Jesus had never attended any of them. And this is what they're marveling about. How did he get his intellect? How did he get his knowledge since he doesn't come out of one of our schools? In today's vernacular, we would say, where did he become so learned, having never received an education from an accredited institution? He never passed the bar. He never passed the test. He never sat under the seminary. He doesn't quote from Gamaliel. He didn't learn from any of these men. He's a Nazarite. He's from Nazareth. He's a Galilean. He's never been in Jerusalem for school. How does he have such an intellect? How is he, how is he so smart? And notice what they're doing. They're discrediting, discrediting the teacher. They're really not dealing with anything that he's teaching. Do you notice that? He's teaching in the temple, but they're not dealing with what he's saying. All they're trying to do is discredit him in the eyes of the people, and that's what the Jewish leaders who are trying to kill him are now saying. This is the best that they can do. They're on their heels. He's just showed up, and he's got a public people around him already, a public around him. They can't arrest him publicly like that because the crowd would go nuts. They could never pull that off. So now the best thing that they can do is not deal with what he's teaching, but simply to attack his credentials. He's not educated. Don't listen to him. And the implication is... You can't trust what he's saying because he doesn't get this from one of the rabbis. And see, they're, they're trying to discredit him, but I'll tell you, this is one thing that they're bringing up to discredit him is the one thing that makes him more credible than anybody else, isn't it? What they're saying is he doesn't get his teaching from men, not from our schools, not from our rabbis. Don't listen to him. That was the one reason they should listen to him because he didn't get his teaching from men. And that's what he says in verse 16. My teaching comes from the Father. That's why you should listen to me, not why you shouldn't listen to me. You should listen to me for this very reason. I don't give you what Rabbi Shmuley says or Rabbi Chakak says. I'm giving you what the Father has given to me, and that's all that I'm giving to you, and you ought to listen to what I say. This His teaching was came from the Father, and as such, he was qualified to teach them on every and any subject. It was They marveled over his knowledge. He's never been to one of our schools. How can he teach like this? Men like Charles Spurgeon, by the way, in church history, they always amaze me, and you know why? Spurgeon was, for all intents and purposes, a very uneducated man. Very uneducated in his day. And, and that was one of the things that people criticized him about. Where does he get his education? And yet he was one of the most articulate men who has ever lived other than the Lord Jesus. He was brilliant. Spurgeon was. There are people who are like that. They don't need... i, I got to have an education to be smart. I'm still working toward that. There are some people who are just smart without an education. They have it naturally. Spurgeon was one of those men, and that's what they're observing in Jesus, a staggering intellect, but he has never learned this from anybody. He's never gone to school from anybody, so they discredit him. All it is is an ad hominem attack, by the way. Do you know what an ad hominem attack is? An ad hominem attack is an attack against the person. Ad, it's a Latin term. Ad meaning at or against or toward. Hominem meaning the man or the person. And this is how it works. When somebody teaches something that you don't like or you don't agree with, you don't deal with the argument, you attack the person who holds it. So rather than attacking the viewpoint, you attack the person who articulates the viewpoint. And we're in a we're in our election cycle this year. In fact, we're in an election cycle every year because they're four years long now. And so every year is, is election year anymore. You just watch for this. You'll see it all the time. It's constant. An ad hominem attack. Somebody will put out a, a policy or a position, and they don't deal with the policy or the position. You know what they do? They attack the person who holds it. So if you have a moral objection against abortion, well, it's just because you don't want women to have health care. That's why you hate That's why you are against abortion. Right? You don't, you think Islam is a satanically inspired false religion and the Quran is a book of lies? Well, you're Islamic phobic. You're Islamophobic. You're just an Islamophobe. Uh, am I scared of people who want to blow up me and my family, my neighborhood, my country and everything I hold dear? Yeah, I am scared of people who want to blow up all of that. 
But that has nothing to do with whether or not Islam is a satanically inspired false religion, does it? You oppose gay marriage? Well, you're just a homophobe. You're just a hate monger. Right? You oppose confiscatory taxes? You know why that is? Because you're greedy. It doesn't deal with the issue, right? It's just an ad hominem attack. It's just leveling attack against the person who holds the view. That's all they're doing with Jesus. They don't deal with his teaching. What do they do? He's an uneducated rube. Don't listen to him. He doesn't come from one of our schools. So don't pay him any mind. It's just an ad hominem attack. So Jesus' response is in verses 16 through 24. I told you this had to be shorter. and We've got to wrap this up today. Verse 16 through 24 is his response to their ad hominem attack. And he turns the tables on them in a masterful way. And probably the best way to conclude, um, to conclude today is to introduce next week. Here's something I noticed about verse, verses 16 through 24. And this is just going to serve as kind of an introduction to this passage. In verses 16 to 24, a lot of the themes and the, and the situation from chapter 5 all the way back, a whole chapter and a half ago now, is brought up all over again. And there's something striking in the similarities between chapter 5 and chapter 7. It's the same location. It's in Jerusalem. It's to the same group of people that is hostile Jews who are trying to kill him. They have the same intentions. They're trying to kill him. And it's over the same issue. And that was the healing of the, blind, of the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Do you remember that? In chapter 5, and he did it on the Sabbath. And for that reason, they wanted to kill him. So Jesus answered their objections and proclaimed his own divinity in chapter 5. And that whole discourse, the divine son discourse, is all about answering their objections. Now in chapter 7, you might call this sort of the mini divine son discourse. Because the issue is the same. There's the same group of people still trying to kill him. And look at the issue in verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one deed and all of you marvel. For this reason Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? What is he, what is he referring to there? He's referring back to the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda way back in chapter 5. That was the thing that launched their attack against him, their desire to kill him. That initiated it, and he's referring back to that. The issue is the exact same. So it should not surprise us that since the people are the same, the intentions are the same, the issue is the same, that his response to them would be very much the same, and it is. Many of the themes in chapter 5 are reiterated again in chapter 7. In fact, if you took all of chapter 5 and you sort of boiled it down to a real potent form and delivered it again, it would be what we find in chapter 7. So I want you to notice a couple of the themes that are similar. A couple of the themes that are similar. You can keep your finger either in chapter 5 or in chapter 7, or both if you so choose. But I want you to notice a couple of similar themes. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 in chapter 7 deals with the issue of the source of Jesus' teaching. Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If you look over at chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me. That is, right there, Jesus is equating his teaching with the Father's teaching. Believe my word is to believe the one who sent me, because his teaching, he came from the Father, and what he taught was the Father's teaching. Back in chapter 7, verse 16, the issue is being sent by the Father when Jesus says, His teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. You remember from chapter 5 all the references to being sent by the Father. You can see it in verses 23 and 24, most notably. So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus says in verse 24 that if you believe his word, you believe him who sent me, and you have eternal life. Do not come into judgment, but have passed out of death into life. Verse 30 in chapter 5 mentions being sent by the Father. Verse 36 is being sent by the Father. Verse 37 means uh, refers to being sent by the Father. Verse 38, verse 43. 
That's the main theme of chapter 5. Jesus brings it up again in chapter 7. Also in chapter 7, verse 17, the Lord makes reference to doing the will of the Father. Jesus says, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Over in chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus refers to him doing the will of the Father. I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In chapter 7, verse 18, Jesus makes reference to seeking glory from others. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. He who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Turn back to chapter 5, verses 41 to 44. Jesus makes reference to the seeking glory. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only true God. And then in chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus makes reference to the law of Moses and their disobedience to the law of Moses. Verse 19, did Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? So their violation of the law of Moses was in trying to kill him unjustly. Looking back at chapter 5, verses 44, or verses 45 through the end of the chapter, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What is Jesus doing in chapter 7? The people are the same. The issue is the same. Their intentions are the same. So what does he do with what he did in chapter 5? He boils it all back down and he puts it right back in the middle of the table. And this is the issue. You must realize I came from the Father. I do only and always the Father's will. I seek only and always the Father's glory. And everything that I do is the Father's doing. He sent me, and what I am teaching you is his commands. That was the issue back in chapter 5. They hated him for it. They rejected him. And he brings it right back and puts it right back in the middle of the table with the same group of people and says, this is the issue now, again, in chapter 7. You must come to grips with this reality. You have received the law of Moses. You have violated the law of Moses. You do not keep the law of Moses. You do not listen to Moses. And the evidence of you not listening to Moses is that you want to kill me. It's right back up there for them to deal with it. This is what I love about the Lord. Right? Hostility, controversy, mayhem, their hatred, their vitriol, all of that. He doesn't cower from it. He doesn't change the subject. He doesn't try and find common ground. He just brings it right out and puts it right back in front and says, this is it. This is what you have to deal with. These are the issues. And you will not deal with these issues, and so you will perish in your sin. Strong stuff, isn't it? Well, that serves as an introduction then to verses 16 through 24. And next week we will dive into that and take a look at that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we have the confidence that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is who he said he is. Forced by your word and by his deeds and by his actions and his words, we are to conclude that he is God in human flesh and that you sent your son to be the savior of the world. Thank you for such a precious savior, such a gracious, loving, kind gift of salvation. And thank you again for bringing it to us. Thank you that we can rest our hope and our confidence upon Christ and upon him alone, and in so doing, you grant us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We rejoice in your goodness to us, and we ask your blessing upon our afternoon and our time. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.